and welcome to the Screen Test of Time, the podcast where we watch every movie ever nominated for Best Picture in order from the very first award ceremony to someday the present year. I am one of your hosts, Susan Raslin. I'm your other host, I'm David Dahl. And this week, we are starting the 1934 slash nothing awards because the academy finally figured out that was stupid with the romantic comedy it happened one night i i don't know what to say about this one because it's a good movie (laughs) um i mean i i i i have things to say i'm not just gonna be silent for the next hour but like (laughs) that would definitely be a very postmodern podcast yeah but like my usual opening everything is garbage and i hate everyone involved in the making of this film is not applicable this time so i don't really know how to start i have a lot of conflicting feelings about this movie despite the fact that i liked it i would agree with that and honestly i had to watch it twice because the first time through i was watching it yesterday and there was like a bunch of work fires that I was having to put out so I kept having to stop it and my husband Sean was home and he was like this movie is great every few minutes (laughs) and usually he's like I'm gonna go to the bedroom so I don't have to watch the horrible movie you're watching (laughs) yeah and it made the movie actually made me really angry when I watched it the first time and I was like okay well if Sean likes it and he hates everything I'm going to rewatch it, and I rewatched it this morning, and I really liked it, and I realized that one of the reasons I hated it is when I was distracted by all of this stuff for my job. The only parts I tuned into were when Clark Gable was screaming at Claudette Colbert. <laughs> yeah, I sent you a text saying that, like, this is the er-romantic comedy, and while, like, that is a compliment, it's also, it establishes everything about the romantic comedy, including all the problems with romantic comedies. Yes, absolutely. It never, for me, fully tips over into fuck this movie, but it definitely does have that problem of romantic comedies where, like, she's got to grow and change and become a better person for this relationship to work, and he's got to figure out that a billionaire heiress wants to fuck him. <laughs> Like, th- like, yeah, that that is definitely it. We should go over the plot really quickly, which is easy, and we could get into the details in the description. But basically, Claudette Colbert is a billionaire heiress who has married, I guess, at City Hall or in front of a justice of the peace, an aviator, and her father hates this guy. His name is King Wesley. So she dives off of a yacht to run away from her dad, sells her watch, gets on a Greyhound bus to go back to New York, where she meets Clark Gable. And then, you know, they have a whole meet-cute thing. He figures out who she is. He's a reporter, so he's like, I'm gonna have the scoop of the year, taking the billionaire heiress back to her aviator husband. So he helps her get back to New York, and on the way, of course, they fall in love. He dashes off to New York and leaves her sleeping in a boarding house, I guess, outside of Philadelphia. I think it's a motor lodge, but that's not all that important. I mean, it just looks like a house to me, but I guess, like, in 1934, that's what a motor lodge looks like, is, like, little cabins. I I guess? They, They hadn't quite figured out the motel yet. So he dashes back to New York to get money from his editor, $1,000, so he can propose to her and tells his editor, like, oh, I've got the scoop of the year. I'm gonna marry her. She wakes up, finds that he's not there, calls her dad, and then goes back to New York, thinking that Peter, Clark Gable, doesn't actually love her. And then she's about to get married, and of course, at the altar, runs away into a car, and then they get married the end yeah yeah with her dad's blessing that is one thing i really definitely want to touch on oh yeah we've got to yes we absolutely have to get into because it's the most frank capra shit it's absolutely some like this guy is such a good guy that it just is not recognizably human anymore yeah the the dad when peter comes to him and says like i want the money that I spent on bringing your daughter across the country, but not the $10,000 reward. Her dad is all, oh, do you love her? And he's finally confesses that he does. 
And the dad, who is a billionaire, who doesn't like the fact that she's marrying this famous aviator, is like, hey, broke reporter, if you love her, go after her. And I'm like, what? For real? (laughs) Also, generously borderline alcoholic broke reporter. That's very generous. (laughs) Like, I... I don't think it's ever directly established in dialogue that it's that he's an alcoholic, but he is drunk and getting fired when we meet him and drinking every time he works for the entire rest of the film. Yes, though I will say Clark Gable can pull off sweaty and drunk and still being completely gorgeous in a way that no human being has ever been able to do. Yes, if I was to order what is great about this movie, it would pretty much go Frank Capra, Claudette Colbert, Clark Gable in descending order. And like, that's pretty good when the third best thing about your movie is Clark Gable. Oh yeah, absolutely. We were just putting out the Shanghai Express episode. And so the cinematography here is certainly not as spectacular, but I think the direction is maybe the best directing we've seen of any movie there's so many like small elegant little smart touches in this movie like there's so much like hidden information from the characters it thinks about the camera's point of view and the audience's point of view in a way like i don't think we've seen other movies do before I mean, just this really small thing is that there is a scene with Claudette Colbert's character, Ellie. Her father is riding in an airplane trying to find her because she's run away. And then it cuts to her waking up in the morning and you can hear the noise of the father's airplane passing overhead. Right. You know, no one else can put that information together. It's just this kind of small background joke for the audience and no one else. And there's so many things like that, just like little small touches, little like establishing shots, just little moments of like, oh, this is really well directed and like really well directed in a way that is not like show stoppingly, beautifully constructed shots, but just like everything is here for a reason. And somebody actually thought about the framing of all of these shots And I don't think we've seen that before. (laughs) Yeah, this is the best marriage of cinematography, the directing of the actors, and, like, the overall directing. It's a really holistically solid film in a way that I don't think we've ever seen before. And you know my love for the, the cinematography of Shanghai Express, but Shanghai Express is almost an art film, whereas this is, like, an incredibly tight movie. Yeah, it still has a little bit of that this is our big showstopper shot thing Mm -hmm. and this doesn't have it's not that the rest of the shots besides that in shanghai express were like bad but there were still some like let's just set up the camera and let the people go shots in shanghai express right whereas all of these feel very thoughtful and often in a way where where like it's invisible Mm -hmm. and having watched it twice I started noticing things like that, where there were certain shots that I noticed on the first go around. Like, there's a point where they're hitchhiking, and Ellie is, like, lying on her side with her hand, you know, under her chin on a fence. And I noticed that shot the first time, because I was like, oh, well, that's a total, like, cheesecake shot of Claudette Colbert being, like accidentally adorable but watching it the second time it was like all of these are really well thought out it wasn't just set the camera up pointed at the actors and see what happens it felt very controlled in a good way like not contrived but controlled i kind of want to just like talk about that one scene for like an hour oh it's so good (laughs) because one i think that that is the scene that makes the movie without that scene it would just be clark gable yelling at an heiress that she's naive and an asshole for two hours oh no there's one other one that definitely made it for me i feel like with this movie we should go from the beginning, step by step, through every trope that this movie establishes for the rest of eternity. <laughs> God, yes. Let's start with the meat cute of our couple. Yes. 
where she steals his seat after he steals his seat by being an asshole because there's a seat in the back of the bus that has a bunch of newspapers that are going to be delivered to the sort of towns along the route of this bus. And he just throws them out the window of the back of this bus because he wants to sit (laughs) down and he's drunk and he's kind of a jerk. And it's just gotten fired. Yeah. And he starts arguing with the bus driver about it. And the argument is great because the dialogue in this movie is great. And the bus driver keeps saying, oh, yeah. And he just keeps having a like, yeah, dude, this is you're real witty. This is great. This is a great conversation we're having. Oh, yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. Which he does three times because the rule of threes is three times is funny. (laughs) Yeah, he does it three times. And then they do it as a callback joke before the character leaves the movie, which is fantastic. But while he is doing this, while he's getting into this argument, which is like such a great establishing moment for Clark Gable's character as well, while he's in this argument that he wins by being just a smug jackass, she walks right past him and just sits down in the seat he's like arguing about. And he only realizes it once he's done putting one over on the bus driver. And then he insists that there's room enough on the bench for two of them and puts her bag down on the floor and sits down next to her. And then tells her that if she's nice, he'll put the bag up for her. And it's, you know, it's the meet cute. It's the like charming little, we've established who both of our characters are and why they don't like each other, but why they also have an instant attraction to one another. Right. She falls asleep and of course wakes up and she is like on his shoulder with her arm sort of halfway around his arm. It's adorable. It is one, it's adorable, but also it is absurd that anyone would ever get into that position taking a nap naturally. (laughs) Her hand is literally resting inside of the like breast pocket of his coat like there's just no way that you get into that but it's but it is adorable because claudette colbert is adorable and they're just like they're an adorable couple and it's charming so right meet cute check (laughs) next trope that we encounter is they get off at a rest stop and the bus driver is like you have 15 minutes or i think he says you have 15 minutes doesn't really matter And then her bag goes missing. Her bag is stolen. Her bag is stolen, yeah. And Clark Gable goes running off after the thief without even telling her that someone is trying to steal her bag. Then he comes running back out of breath to say he couldn't catch the guy. And she's like, who's this weirdo? And why is he (laughs) talking to me? Right, but... Now she is helpless and dependent on him because she has she doesn't have any clothes. And he also found her bus ticket, or does that happen later? That happens later. Okay. That's when she decides to just tell the bus driver to wait for her. Right. And then is shocked that, in fact, the, the bus just moved on. <laughs> on schedule without waiting for her. Right. So both of those stories actually, or both of those incidences establish her as like, rich girl doesn't know how to take care of herself, needs someone to show her how life is in the real world. And Clark Gable, of course, is like street smart and is going to take care of her. (laughs) Right. Which is the biggest problem with this movie. It tries to get around the gender implications of that by making it a class thing. Whenever he yells at her, he is very carefully yelling at her for being rich. But also, he yells at her a lot. Yeah, he's mean to her a lot. Yeah. This is where it gets into a trope that I frankly hate and that I think is a little bit dangerous. And that happens a lot in romantic comedies for the next forever. Which is, if a guy is mean enough to a girl, she will fall in love with him. (laughs) Yes. I think it works in this movie because Clark Gable is kind of... I thought a lot about Bad Girl while I was watching this because I sort of think our male protagonists are very similar. Yes. They're both not misogynists so much as misanthropes, and they're both able to kind of project this heart of gold underneath their asshole-ish exterior. But I think what happens over the next, you know, century of romantic comedies 
is that you get a lot of romantic comedies that aren't able to elegantly show the heart of gold underneath that. And just straightforwardly, the moral is if you're mean enough to a girl, she'll fall in love with you. Um, as long as you just stick around through sheer persistence. Right. The blueprint for that is laid in, in this film, and it kind of has to answer for that a little bit, despite the fact that Clark Gable personally is very charming in it. So that's another trope that we can check off. Then they end up staying at some sort, I guess it's a motor lodge as well. <laughs> But they can only afford one room. So, like, there's the there's another trope. <laughs> right. And they have the most aggressive... Uh, it, is, it is one of the most jerkish things he does, but it is also, like... Oh, yeah, I actually see how he gets laid from this. <laughs> Sequences in that where he sets up a blanket between the two beds in the bedroom so that they, you know, have some privacy. Right, they run a rope between the two walls, so there's a blanket wall. Which he refers to... <laughs> uh, as the Walls of Jericho, which it comes back as a running joke that I don't love, but it is it is there. But he then, to get her to go to her side of the room, instead of arguing with her, just aggressively strips and narrates his own stripping. Which is, one, charming because his narration is actually pretty solid because it's about how no two men ever take off their clothes in exactly the same way. And here's how I like to do it. It's, I go shirt first, then I go undershirt. Some guys go shirt first, then they go for the shoes. Not me. And also, he's getting naked and he's Clark Gable. So those two things together (laughs) work out pretty well for him. Yeah, I'm just going to say to anybody who who watches this movie and thinks like, oh yeah, this is a technique that would definitely work. Check yourself against Clark Gable first. (laughs) Yes. And like, be realistic. And if you measure up to how handsome Clark Gable is, still try this like very carefully because you may just get punched or someone may call the cops on you. Also keep in mind that Clark Gable, even Clark Gable gets to taking his shirt off and then starts aggressively stalling. So if you're... <laughs> while still wearing pants. Right, right. Don't go for the pants. Yeah. Just go for the shirt. Uh, Funny thing that I read about this is that apparently after this movie came out, the sales of undershirts dropped dramatically because he's not <laughs> wearing one. <laughs> Amazing. So yeah, so we've got that whole trope, which is the uh, girl notices that guy is actually super physically attractive, despite being kind of a dick about it. Right. And then we have their first sort of like, then he notices that she's super physically attractive because she throws her under nighty i forget what those are called because women slip thank you her slip over the the blanket for a second and so he thinks about how hot she is for a second and then they go to sleep and then uh, this is a bit of a digression but it's where it occurs in the film and it is yet another trope because this is the first time we've heard him referenced before But around here in the movie is the first time we actually see and meet King Wesley, Ellie's sort of already husband, who she eloped with before the film began. Also, I want to take a moment to just talk about how that is the worst name I've ever heard. Because I kept hearing them refer to him, you know, different as King and as Wesley. And I was like, is the guy's name Wesley and his last name is King? Nope. He just has the most Frank Capra name of all time. (laughs) Yes, and I think it's intentional because, like, the trope we've gotten to now is, like, cinema's first to the Baxter. He is the Baxter because we never establish anything about him except that he flies planes and his name is King Wesley, and yet you're supposed to automatically root against him. And you do. Yeah, despite the fact that he never displays any negative qualities whatsoever. No. Which we will get to, but, like, he's not a jackass, he's not mean, he doesn't seem to be a gold digger, like, he's just kind of nothing. The establishing fact about him that's supposed to let you know that this guy's no good is he's gonna fly a plane into his own wedding. Not a plane, 
an auto gyro, right. which is apparently a motorless helicopter. Anyway, that's why he's a garbage person. <laughs> then we get back to the two of them at this auto lodge, and there's a short sequence where she goes off to take a shower and can't believe there's a line for the shower. And then, oh, then there's a great scene. This is absolutely my favorite scene of the entire movie. So some detectives who have been hired by her dad show up at the motor lodge, and they're like, we've got to go and investigate every room and see everybody, because maybe she's here. So Clark Gable, of course, because he's street smart, let's not forget, (laughs) picks up on this and starts, like, pushing her hair into her face. (laughs) Oh, right before this, he says something about, you know, oh, well, you're lucky and spoiled and whatever else. And she has a whole monologue about how, like, she can't be spoiled because she's actually never gotten to do anything that she wants. And she's never had her own way. And she's always had bodyguards. And the one and only time that she was able to slip her detail, she ran into a cab, met King Wesley, and that was how they met and fell in love, I guess. So, like, actually, we had a we had another trope that we could check off there, which is the poor little rich girl. <laughs> right. The thing that I love about that conversation is that there's some specific details in it. Like, they talk about being a plumber's daughter, and they talk about... Right. She says that she would trade places with a plumber's daughter any day. Right. Which then they immediately, sort of wordlessly, he's just pushing her hair into her face, and he immediately goes into being a, a husband who's, like, sick of his wife role, To make the situation so awkward that the detectives just want to leave without taking a thorough look around, they start having a really loud (laughs) married couple argument. And she puts on this, like, generally lower class accent from kind of anywhere. (laughs) Yeah. The thing that's great about it is that it feels like a thing they could genuinely have improvised because little details from their actual argument before pop up in the fake argument. Like, he starts yelling that I never should have married a plumber's daughter. And there is a sense of like, oh, they actually are inventing this in the moment that is really well done uh, and really fun. He has a thing where he accuses her of flirting with some Swedish guy and she's like, I was not, you were drunk. (laughs) And then they do the the little thing where they just keep loudly arguing until she starts just bawling, and then the detectives excuse themselves, and they immediately break out of character and start laughing and talking about how fun that was and how the other one was really great. So, like, multiple tropes here. Pretending to be married. (laughs) Right. Having the fake fight that, like, makes... It's so uncomfortable that the people looking for her go away. Also, like, actual parts of their conflict sneaking into the fake fight. What else is there? Oh, and they seamlessly team up to effortlessly form a partnership to get out of this. Right. They show their chemistry by being able to just wordlessly do this incredible plan and do a great job with it. Because even though they hate each other, they have such natural chemistry that clearly it's meant to be. Right. They just click. Then they have to hitchhike because they miss... Oh, it isn't that they miss their bus. There's a short thing where there's an annoying guy. Also, all the minor characters in this movie are great, which is a thing we haven't gotten into. The bus driver is great. There's a a hitchhiker we're about to get to that's great. And then there is Oscar Shapley, who is an incredibly annoying guy who just can't stop talking and is why they first start pretending to be married is so that he can get her away from this annoying guy on the bus who keeps hitting on her. Right. But Oscar Shapley then figures out who she is and tries to split the reward with Clark Gable, who on the spot starts pretending to be a mobster who's kidnapped her. (laughs) And is going to ransom her for way more than $10,000. And then goes, wait, it, oh, you're, you're, you're in for this, right? We're gonna, like, we gotta cut off her toes by the next couple of days to send him to her dad. Oh, I didn't realize that was what, what do you mean you didn't realize? And basically threatens him into. And his kids. And his kids into staying silent about it. Otherwise he's gonna run afoul of the mob. 
And then because Oscar Shapley is eventually going to figure out that he got conned, they have to get off the bus that they have been riding to New York and start hitchhiking, which is... Oh, we also get that very cute small scene where he carries her across the river that has a terrible ending, but is otherwise great. Oh, yeah. So he's got her thrown over his shoulder and she says how great it is because she hasn't had a piggyback ride in years. And he's like, this isn't a piggyback ride. (laughs) She says, it is a piggyback ride. My dad did this with me when I was a kid and, and it was a piggyback ride. And my cousin has five kids and this is a piggyback ride. And he's like, you wouldn't know a piggyback ride because only the best people know piggyback rides. And because you're rich, all of your people are dumb, I guess. And you you sent me the absolute best line in that scene as a text, which is the part where he goes, all great Americans know how to do a piggyback ride. Abraham Lincoln, natural born piggybacker. <laughs> And everything is going really, really well, and they're having a charming argument, and then he asks her to hold something, and then spanks her. And I'm like, why did you have to ruin this scene with that? Yes. Because also, if he just made her hold something, that would already be a good enough out for the scene. If it was just like, uh, just shut up and hold these shoes. Like, because she is now loudly insisting that her dad is actually a great piggybacker. And he's like, yeah, whatever. Um, But then he has to spank her. And it's like, man, we hadn't walked over the line into you actually striking her. And it's like, I get that it's like playful and not like abuse, but also we kind of don't need to walk that line when he's yelling at her all the time. Considering the scene that comes next, that this was the point when I was watching it the first time where I went, oh, I don't like this movie because it is setting up this like, oh, if he's mean to her enough, then she'll fall in love with him. So they end up having to sleep outside and he's really mean to her. She's like, I'm hungry and I'm scared. And he says, well, you can't be both at the same time. And I'm like, why are you gaslighting this poor woman? Like one is a physical response. The other one is a feeling. And then at some point he's like, I was just thinking about how dames like you get to be so dizzy. And I'm like, what is your fucking problem, dude? Every time Clark Gable's character tries to be deep in this movie, it's the worst part of the fucking film. Because he also has a thing at the motor lodge where he's like, sometimes I just think about the stars and what it means to be a man. And it's like, what the fuck are you doing, my man? Like, just stop. There's like three or four points where he just does these like stare off into the middle distance and do a monologue things and they're all awful yeah and that scene coming on the heels of him smacking her ass i was like this guy's a dick why are we rooting for him and on the rewatch was when i realized that this was the point where he figures out that he has feelings for her which is bad because he's a poor reporter and she's literally already married (laughs) Right. I think it's that. And I also think it's that it is immediately followed by that hitchhiking scene, which is why I say that that's the scene that kind of saves the movie for me, because it reverses the he knows what he's doing and she's just a naive rich girl dynamic and actually makes him the the butt of the joke finally finally because really that scene where they're outside i was like i get it it sucks you have feelings for this girl and it's not gonna work out because you're you're from two different worlds and whatever but like handle your fucking feelings better dude yeah yeah Hey everybody, it's David. We'd really like it if you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or your podcasting app of choice. While you're there, you can also like Screen Test of Time and write us a review, preferably a positive one with like five stars. What should you write in your review? Maybe you can thank Susan for sitting through all the lip-smacking sounds in State Fair, or congratulate me on the one time I didn't call a movie weird. I don't know, just write what's in your heart. But also, make sure your heart wants to give us five stars. Anyway, 
on to the hitchhiking scene. So the next morning, they decide that they're going to hitchhike because they can't be on buses anymore because her picture is splashed all over every paper and there's a $10,000 reward. Right. And so they decide they're going to hitchhike. He starts doing this long monologue about how he's an expert hitchhiker and he's going to write a book about hitchhiking. And the secret is all in the thumb, you see. You got to shake it like this and you got to pull your arm back and you got to really let him know. And then cars start coming and there is this fantastic shot after the first car just drives right past him of him trying this technique a dozen or two times. The thing that's great about this shot is that it's head on toward him with the road in between the camera and him. And so these cars sort of pass through in front of him in your field of vision. It must have been so hard to stage because the comic timing on the cars coming and his reaction to the cars coming is so good. There's some beautiful editing in that scene because it would be so easy to mess up that editing. Right. And it is just seamless. And he just tries to hitchhike with like two dozen cars and it completely fails. And she goes, do you mind if I have a try? Pulls up her skirt to show her leg and immediately gets a car. And he says, oh, I'm not I'm not going to write that book after all. <laughs> right. There's another great thing that just happens throughout this movie, and I don't know how intentional it is. But there's so many just long shots of one or the other of them looking smug that actually hold for, like, slightly too long to the point where you're like, all right, man, it wasn't that great. But they're funny. Right. And it's actually kind of great that you have that reaction of, like, it holding too long. It actually kind of undercuts them in a way that I like. Right. There's a lot of moments after this, and I think it's very subtle, but it's very smart, where it's finally revealed that Claudette Colbert is not, not only is she not naive and witless, that she actually is intelligent and can, like, think on her feet, but there's also now a very subtle sexuality and an ownership of that sexuality that comes into it, which starts with the revealing of her leg. And then I noticed that there were several times after this where her voice drops in conversation and gets like very sort of husky and seductive. And you're like, oh, okay, this is a woman who is like not unaware of the power that she has. Yeah, she becomes a, like, more active character in the back half of the film and has sort of more agency generally in a way that is good. Yes. Let's get to our next trope because it's our other really problematic trope. It turns out the guy they're hitchhiking with, who's also a sort of rich, rounded character who has interesting things about him, was kind of trying to scam them and Peter... Clark Gable's character runs off, beats up the guy, and steals his car off screen. For which there are no repercussions. No. Ever. They then stay at another motor lodge, which it's established she knows she could just come back and marry King Wesley because her dad has made a deal with King Wesley because he's worried about her and just wants her to come home. And she, like, hides the paper and insists they stay the night before they go into New York. And she confesses that she is in love with him. We get to the next big romantic comedy trope where he totally blows this in about eight different ways. Oh, he totally blows it. Like, first of all, dude, tell her you feel the same way. Right. Don't leave and leave her alone. And also don't not say anything when you do that. Always leave a note. If we learned anything from Arrested Development. Exactly. It's you always leave a note. And that there's always money in the banana stand. That's the other thing. Exactly. Which also comes into play in a big way in the third <laughs> note. But he decides without telling her to drive off to New York to see his old newspaper editor to get enough money from the story that he has been... He has ostensibly been traveling with her to get the story of her running off. Um, and he's going to sell that story to his newspaper editor to get enough money to feel like he can build a life for them and then come back and surprise her with it so that they can get married. But it's a three hour drive to New York and then he's got to argue with the newspaper editor and then he's got to drive back 
And in that time, the owner of the motor lodge decides that they were going to scam them because they were. Right, because they didn't have any money. And kicks her out. And she, thinking that he has been scared off by her coming on to him, and also from him just generally being an asshole, walks to the sheriff's station and calls her dad and gets picked up to go get married. And we have uh, our next cliche, because we have the missed it by that much sequence of him driving back and getting passed by the motorcade that's coming to pick her up, and only realizing when they are passing him going the other way that she's in the car and that she isn't going to be waiting for him at the motor lodge. And that he fucked up. One of the things that really bothered me about his plan, and I'm using that as a very, very generous term here. <laughs> yes. To drive to New York, get money, and drive back. You could spend three hours in New York looking for parking. Right? So, like, he could be gone for a day. There's also, I was really bothered by this plan because it gave him ownership of her story in a way that really bugged me. Yeah, that's a really good point. Because ostensibly he's doing this because he feels like he's too poor to marry her and doesn't want to just rely on her money and wants to get some money of his own for them to start a family together. But also he's getting that money from just taking her story without fucking asking her. Right, exactly. (laughs) She does have some ownership over the whole trip that you guys have taken. Like, it's not just yours. And I will say that this is something that in later romantic comedies ends up being subverted and becoming the standard trope, which is the abandoning the money plan because the girl is more important. Yeah. They have two parts of that trope, but they don't Venn diagram in this, but we'll get to the second part of it later. Then we get to the wedding, basically. The wedding that Ellie is going to have with King Wesley, and then we meet her second completely different dad, who just happens to be played by the same guy who played her dad in the first scene, where he was a complete controlling asshole who hit her, but is now the nicest billionaire we've ever seen in any Screen Test of Time movie. Right, has absolutely no issues with class or anything else. He just really doesn't think King Wesley is good enough for his daughter. But drunk reporter, definitely cool. There's another trope that happens before the wedding where she and King Wesley, we finally see them interact. And this was the point where I was like, why am I cheering for the asshole guy? Because King Wesley was super nice to her. And she's like, we're going to have adventures and it's going to be like life is going to be a laugh riot. And we're going to get on the merry-go-round and never get off, right? We're going to stay on the merry-go-round. And he's like, yeah, sure, honey. If that's what you want, we'll do that. And I'm like, this guy is great. Uh, There's this really bad romantic comedy called Leap Year, where she can only be proposed to on the, the leap day, because that's just a weird Irish family tradition they've got. And her fiancé, who's played by Adam Scott, so who's way too charming and handsome to be a Baxter, the way that he you find out that he's supposed to be the Baxter toward the end of the movie is she comes back and he is talking up the co-op board of the building that she told him he wants to live in. And it's like... It's not his fucking fault you had this weird Irish adventure with a handsome guy with a beard and didn't fucking tell him about it. And similarly, I feel like it's not King Wesley's fault that she decided that she really liked Clark Gable's monologue about going to an island in the Pacific that she didn't tell him about. Because King Wesley would be like, yeah, fuck it, let's go to an island in the Pacific, who cares? Yeah, he can fly them there. Right? But then she is very sad because she's in love with Peter now. She's in love with Clark Gable. And her dad's like, what happened? And she's like, oh, I fell in love with this guy, but he doesn't love me. And he actually is just an asshole who abandoned me. And he was just in it for the money. And he, Clark Gable has sent a telegram to the dad saying that he wants to meet with him about a financial matter. That Ellie reads and decides means that he's never gave a shit about her and just wanted the money. And so she decides to essentially get married to King Wesley out of spite. In an incredibly gorgeous bias-cut white silk gown with, like, 
huge flowers that are almost off the shoulder, but not quite. And I feel like because we've been going through all this, we have not talked about how incredibly gorgeous Claudette Colbert is. Yeah, we really haven't spent enough time on that. And also how much this movie, like, really, like, not in a way that is super exploitative or i mean it is super exploitative not in a way that's super creepy no it's kind of creepy not in a way (laughs) that is not in a way that's like may west where it's prurient that's what i'm going for yes not a way where it's like you're like oh you're gonna see some leg but it this movie has a lot of like and then you are gonna see some leg when she undresses sequences with claudette colbert and you're like all right because Claudette Colbert is super hot. I don't think I've ever seen anyone who has as much eyelid as she has. Like, <laughs> she's got on so much smoky eye makeup, and there's still, like, an inch between where the smoky eye makeup ends and her eyebrow. Like, yes, she's, her eyes are just huge, and then she has, like, these full Cuban lips. She, she's incredibly beautiful. And... You know, she's wearing this, like, traveling suit for most of the movie because her bag gets stolen. And then, of course, there's the you clean up nice moment, which, check another trope, when she's in this bias cut, clings to every curve wedding dress. (laughs) But is still, like, within the bounds of decency. It, like, winks at it. It's not like her boobs are pushed up to her chin the way Mae West's would be. (laughs) Right. And the other thing I love about how good that dress is, is that, like, it's this great character moment of, like, oh boy, if she's not into it in that wedding dress, she must really have it bad. (laughs) Like, because the dad specifically asks, like, do you like your dress? And she's like, huh? What? Okay. And, oh, thank God a drink is here. (laughs) So, yeah, Clark Gable shows up. Uh, And the day of the wedding is really interesting to me because it seems like a lot is happening on the day of the wedding. Right. The dad specifically has time to meet with Clark Gable in his office, despite the fact that his daughter is already in the wedding dress and, like, ready to go. Yeah. And, like, Clark Gable, yeah, has time to him and Hall decide he's coming, show up to the wedding, have a meeting with the dad, and then leave while they're still in the opening reception before the wedding. So obviously he shows up and is like, here's the detailed invoice of all the money that I spent getting your daughter to New York. And it's like, oh, 39.60. It's right here on the Wikipedia page. (laughs) $39.60. And the dad is like, I mean, don't you want the $10,000? Like, that would be more money than this. He's like, no, I just want the money that I spent because... I don't like getting taken for a buggy ride and paying for the privilege. And actually, even more than that, specifically goes, it's a matter of principle. You probably wouldn't understand because he spends the entire scene insulting this guy and just goes, you're an out of touch billionaire dickhole who probably doesn't get why I want 3960. (laughs) But you know how to write a check, don't you? And then inexplicably, (laughs) right? Dad also falls madly in love with him for being an asshole. Right. The dad is so into this dude, so into his daughter marrying this dude, that he has a car ready and tells his daughter while she's walking down the aisle, you know, you can just still back out. Just run off from this guy to your drunk, broke reporter boyfriend kind of boyfriend. I've got a car waiting for you. I've got a car waiting for you. I'll cover for it. I don't care about how much money this fucking gigantic wedding cost. Just ditch it. (laughs) Because he's a man of principle. (laughs) And just wants his daughter to be happy. Which, who is this guy? Because that was not dad at the beginning of this movie at all. No. And then we get to our final... Well, next to final romantic comedy trope, because she comes up to the altar and we get our speak now or forever hold your peace and nobody does it. So that means the wedding is going to happen now. Oh, my God, guys, we're doomed. And then King Wesley says, I do. And they ask if she says I do. And she does the cutest bite her lower lip, shake her head no thing. And then just bolts. And it is incredibly charming. And we get a shot that is like, 
the ultimate romantic comedy runaway bride shot, which is we get to see the whole thing of her running into frame and her train, like, going across the frame as she gets into the car. Yeah. It's like, yep, we've got to have that shot. (laughs) And also, like, this is a big enough deal in-universe that we see all the cameras at the wedding following her as she bolts. And then we have a short sequence where the dad pays King Wesley $100,000 to annul the initial wedding that happened off-screen before the film. And then it's like, that's the best money I've ever spent. Who is this guy? (laughs) And then we have a cut to the two of them in a motor lodge where they really go whole hog with the walls of Jericho metaphor because they're a newlywed couple, but they make the manager of the motor lodge bring them a blanket and some string and then make him bring a little toy trumpet to, to because they're going to trumpet down the walls of Jericho. Guys, they're going to they're going to bone. They're doing it. And then you have a shot of just the blanket falling to the floor, and then a shot of outside the motor lodge, and the lights go off. Right. The end. So we have our final trope, which is the movie ends with letting you know that the two of them had sex. (laughs) Oh, there was one thing that we missed. So just before they end up not taking buses anymore, there is an incredibly delightful scene where there are some musicians on the bus. Right. And somebody says like, oh, do you know that song about the man on the flying trapeze? And so everybody starts singing the chorus and then like random people on the bus know the various verses. So you've got the like, Oh, Rich Girl realizes that the common folk are fun and has fun for the first time. Right. I think we (laughs) sound really dismissive because we keep going like, oh, the tropes. But like... Oh, that scene is incredibly charming. That scene is so good. The runaway bride scene is so good. This establishes all this shit as cliches because it fucking nails every single one of these. Absolutely. The only part of it that doesn't stand up to the screen test of time is guy is so mean to girl and then eventually her father that they fall in love with him. Again, mostly in this movie, I think if it were just judging this movie in a vacuum, I would give this movie a pass for it because I would say it undercuts Clark Gable. Clark Gable plays it well enough that it doesn't play as he's such a jerk. She falls in love with him for being a jerk. It plays as like, he's such a jerk. It takes her a long time to figure out the person he is underneath being a jerk that is actually a worthwhile human being but i feel like it could use a little more moments of kindness and fun to balance them out because i really felt like there were more moments where he is screaming at her than they're having fun i think that's true and i also think because we're bringing knowledge of the next you know however many years of romantic comedies that have done this way worse because of this movie. I think that it's fair to kind of judge the movie on that. It plays worse than it probably did in 1934 because you are thinking of like, oh, you've got to specifically push back against this thing. You've got to not do this thing because it's the worst part of romantic comedies. It doesn't know that. Right. That is the absolutely the the big knock against this film is that just a lot of the screen time is Clark Gable yelling at Claudette Colbert. And then something that's not specifically a trope to romantic comedies, but is generally a problem with stories writ large, is that she doesn't have ownership of her own experiences, like you were saying. She has very little agency in the whole trip back to New York. She doesn't get to make any of the choices about how they're going to get there. Clark Gable... Decides they're no longer taking buses, decides they're hitchhiking, decides they're going to steal this car, which they never, like, nothing happens because of that, which was, for me, the the point where it tipped from, like, I can suspend my disbelief to he beat up a guy, tied him to a tree, and stole his car, and yet, like, literally nothing happens because of that? I I can buy it for, for two reasons. One is, 
it is established the guy was running a scam and so probably doesn't want to go to the cops too fast about it. And two, it's established that seemingly the entire rest of the movie takes place in under a week. Mm. So in my mind, at some point after the movie, he's got to like go and go like, hey, um, there are some extenuating circumstances, but I, I did steal a car. Um <laughs> And I mean, maybe he takes it back to the guy and he's like, look, you don't you don't tell anybody about this. And I don't tell anybody about the the scam you were trying to run. Right. Uh, But yes, it's weird. But yeah, she doesn't have any ownership over any of it. And she just is shuttled from one experience to the next. And then he's literally going to sell her own experiences for money, even if his reasons are virtuous. And I'm definitely not. I'm definitely not saying that they are, but ostensibly for her so they can have money to start a life together. It's a really dick move to be like, I'm going to sell our story to the newspaper. I hope you don't mind. Right. And like, it's specifically that he's going to sell the story that they're going to get married. Right. Of them falling in love on the way to her, like, being reunited with someone she's already married to, which could make her look really bad. And, like, it's that they kind of had verbally agreed on the the last part of that, right? Like, he is taking this trip with her so that he can sell the story of the trip. There was no agreement that her confessing her love was going to be part of that story. No. That's essentially a proposal, and that's an incredibly personal thing that, like... Maybe run it by her, my dude. Yeah, well, and also, like, he's gonna sell the story that they're gonna get married? Yeah. You didn't... When she said, fine, I... Nothing else matters, I love you, let's run away together. You weren't like, cool. That's all you had to say. It was like, yup, on it. Yeah. Because as far as she knows, you're not getting married. (laughs) It's extremely bad. It is an extremely bad romantic comedy plan. Which I understand romantic comedy plans have to be bad because you've got to, till the very last moment, will they or won't they? Even though you know going in that they will. I mean, I guess now we know that they will. I wonder if it happened one night was the last time that there was any suspense about that. (laughs) Yeah, I... (laughs) There is a thing where the the mechanics of it play a little bit like the... God, I forget if it's the end of the fourth act or the start of the fifth act where you have the... In Romeo and Juliet, where they just miss each other. Where, where they just miss at the... Picking up the poison. Right, right, yeah. It does play as like, oh, this could take a tragic turn. This could have the end of like... The original end of State Fair. Where uh, I guess just sometimes it just never works out. I have to say, honestly, because I didn't read the whole plot description before I watched the movie, I wasn't sure that they were going to get together until he went to get the check. I was like, you know what? Maybe it's just going to work out that, like, you win some, you lose some. And, like, you end up getting married to this guy who maybe she'll remember that she was in love with him. You're right. It really is the scene with the dad where he has itemized all of his expenses where you're like, oh no, actually we're just, we're in a romantic comedy territory 100%. They are absolutely married at the end of this film. Right, there is no question. So to rate this movie. Um, I have been trying to think about, because to me, this is the first movie where I want to start at a perfect 10. And I've got to dock points because Clark Gable yells at Colbert for a lot of this film. But from a, like, was this a well-made film? Were the actors good? Were the costumes good? Were the sets good? (laughs) Like, was it well-directed? Was the cinematography good? Yes, it fucking, like, this was a movie. Yeah, and how. (laughs) And I'll, I mean, I'll even say, like, even though her dad has a complete character change from the first part of the movie to the second part of the movie, Walter Connolly plays both of those characters very, very well. Like, everyone in this movie is good. Everyone who needs to be funny is funny. I think, actually, Jameson Thomas, who plays King Wesley, is too good (laughs) with the few scenes that he has because you're like, wait a minute, but, like, what's wrong with this guy? (laughs) And, like, again, even the most minor characters, the guy who picks them up while they're hitchhiking has really only one, like, character detail, and it's that he sings really, really loudly all of his dialogue. (laughs) And it's 
Which they find oh. annoying. She loves it. He finds it incredibly annoying. Yeah. Well, what what does Clark Gable not find a bitch about in this movie? Right. It's just this great shot of this guy going like, I, why, what, young people in love are never unhappy. And she's like, this is the best because you hate it. And he's <laughs> like, I do hate it. You're correct. And it's great. Everyone in that scene is great. And even the the shapely guy who is super annoying and is hitting on her and then is going to turn her in for the reward, the actor playing it totally nails it. He is definitely a creep who then uh, turns out to be a coward. And the bus driver who does the oh yeah bit, there's this bit during the Flying Trapeze musical number on the bus where they keep cutting to the bus driver kind of getting into it. Right, right. That's great. Like, the most minor characters in this are played so well. They're not the most complex characters, but, like, you get a sense of them as people and not as, like, plot movers. Which I think after watching Lady for a Day, we have to give that credit to Frank Capra. Yeah. Because he just pulls beautiful performances out of people. He cares so much about the, like, humanity of characters. Like... Who is this person? Not like, what, not what do they need to do? Not where is their mark? But like, what does this person want? I have a real sense of what everyone in this movie wants to the most minor character. Yeah, like the detectives who show up for five seconds just to be made uncomfortable by the fake fight that Clark Gable and Claudette Colbert have. I get a sense of their anxiety and their discomfort. Yeah. Also, though, this is my job. I really do have to... Okay, that's too much. Now it's going over the line. I've got to go. Right. Like, you can really see the moment where they go from, like, we've got to do our job here to, oh, man, I do not want to be involved in this. Like, this is above Um, my pay grade. I am out. (laughs) Right. And so I want to I want to know exactly what we rated every other movie and give this like point one above. I think our highest grade has been an eight. And I want to give this like an 8.5. I feel the same way. I really want to give it a nine. But I feel like the really problematic sexist tropes in this movie have to bring it down more than one point. Yeah, they they hold it back. Uh, And it is significant. And, like, the fact that this lays the groundwork for, like, the next 70 years of this toxic character dynamic we're still fucking dealing with. Right. Is, you know, not exclusively, but I think the most directly lays lays out. Here's how you do it. Here's how you have a girl fall in love with an asshole in a way that makes men think they should be assholes so that women fall in love with them. Right, right. Well, or you could, or you could blame Shakespeare for much ado about nothing. Uh, it's that's fair. I mean, but it, eh, we can we can get into a textual argument about Shakespeare later because that's what we do. Um, but <laughs> uh, should you watch this movie? I mean, yes. yes, absolutely, no question. It's on Amazon. They did a restoration five years ago. It looks great, and it is a great movie. Like, go go actually seek out this movie for the first time. Yeah, I will say that... Uh, I, I'll say you should absolutely watch it with a caveat, which is give it your full attention, because the sound editing of this movie is the only place where I think technically it falls short. So it will start clipping when Clark Gable yells at Claudette Colbert, which will catch your attention, and you will think the whole movie is just him berating her, and it will be miserable. So make sure you're paying attention. Yeah, that's absolutely fair. Uh, And it's not hard to pay attention to. It is totally captivating. The dialogue is really great, even when Clark Gable is yelling at Claudette Colbert. But uh, (laughs) it's just super problematic, good dialogue. So what's the last thing we do? We talk about what we do next week. Yes, right. Which is the House of Rothschild, right? Yes, it is the House of Rothschild, which is a movie about the British banking family. Oh. Which, like... Great. (laughs) Great. Fantastic. This is... Well... Here's what I'll say for... Is it going to be boring or like... I mean, there there are definitely stories of wealthy families where like there's scandal and wild things happen to them. Yeah. 
Or it could be super boring. It could be super boring. It could also be uh, super complimentary of the banking industry in a way I don't know if I'm going to be on board with. Um, but at least it won't be Viva Villa, which we're going to watch the week after that. That's, that is true. Oh, the Rothschilds were not necessarily an English banking family. They were a European banking family. Yeah, I feel like, I feel like there's almost no way that in the 30s, a movie that's like, bankers are good, actually, would get nominated for an Academy Award during the Depression. Yeah. But I guess we'll find out. Yeah, we'll find out. Uh, Join us next time on the Screen Test of Time. And until then, that was a movie. It was definitely a movie. It was a great movie, and you should watch it. Go do that now. Which you can tell, because this is going to be like our longest episode ever, Susan. I don't know how you're going to edit this down below like 50 minutes. That's fine. Everybody will enjoy hearing us go scene by scene through this entire movie. Well, there was fi- we, there was finally a movie. We really needed to do a very special episode because this was finally a movie. Anyway, right. Well, un- until then, this is us signing off. Goodbye, everybody. Good night and good luck. Nope, that's not us. Bye. 